0: Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 6, 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, again. Um, since the last time I preached, there's some big news. I recently got a big promotion. Yeah. Um, I've actually moved from kinder kids uh, to lower elementary teaching now over in, uh, in the kids' ministries. Very exciting. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big honor. Um, the, the challenge, though, is that I have to really know my stuff because they will call me on it. Um, so it's a lot safer being here than over there. Um, I do still like to draw out the message. They still have fond memories of me drawing out the message as I'm teaching it to them. But they're l- way less impressed with my bad drawings now that they're not four years old anymore. So um, I'm really having to step my game up. Watching YouTube like drawing video. No, I'm not doing that. Um, Today, enough of that. Today, we are talking about how we change, right? We're going to dive into heart change. So let me go ahead and pray, and we'll uh, we'll jump right into this. Lord, we we thank you for today. Um, Lord, it's it's mid-July. We're expecting sun and, and heat, and instead we get kind of cold and dreary, and it can cause us to to kind of. Close in and, and want to wrap a blanket around us and just hunker down. But Lord, I pray that today we sense your worthiness, we sense your magnitude, and we we realize that all the 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 struggle and strife it took to get us here, whether it be the struggles with the kids and and or just our own energy levels of getting here. Lord, I pray that as we sit in these in these seats today, that we would. Uh, just be, be filled by, by your spirit, that we would be um, excited to worship you, that we would sense that you are worth it all. Lord, so I pray that you would cause us to open our hearts and our minds to you, open our ears to you, Lord, today, that we wouldn't um, hunker down and, and shut off. Lord, we would open ourselves up to you now in this moment. So Lord, cause us to, to, to tune our ears and our hearts to you and let us hear from you this morning. Lord, speak through me. And my words be your words, and Lord, may you be glorified and magnified in this place today. We ask you in your holy and precious name, amen. Amen. All right, so today, uh, the passage we're looking at, Jesus is teaching what they call the, the Sermon on the Plain, and we just went through a big series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is very similar. Some would say it actually might be just Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but at any, any rate, Jesus is sharing and teaching through similar discourse about what life is like in the kingdom of God. what he's doing, he's calling people in this sermon uh, to deeper obedience beyond the surface. Okay, he's saying, does your outward obedience to God's truth lead to a deeper, more profound heart obedience? And in many ways, um, it's a cycle. The more outward obedience you have, it drives deeper heart obedience. And the deeper heart obedience you have to God's truth, the more it drives your outward obedience, and so on and so on, all right, and Jesus is teaching all these things, and it culminates with this passage, let me read this passage one more time for us, this is in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit, by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, Jesus just isn't really big into farming. Uh, Rather, Jesus is pointing to fruit as a marker for spiritual health. Right, when Jesus talks about fruit, he's painting, a, he's using vivid imagery to describe the heart level impact of what we say and what we do. Because we all produce something. What's important for us to realize is that we are always producing something. There's always some kind of result coming from us that describes and shows us and reveals to us something about us. All right, Jesus sees our actions and our words like fruit growing from a tree. But in our case, the tree is our very being, our essence, our character, who we are. Right? You could say that the fruit of our lives has a direct correlation to the condition of our hearts. Now, the heart is the seat and center of the human life. Right? It's the center of personality. It controls intellect and emotion and our will. Very simply, if we can control the heart... We can control our actions, our thoughts, and our words. That's pretty easy, right? No problem. Just control the heart. Everything's taken care of. Fortunately, unfortunately, sin has distorted the desires of our hearts, turning us away from God towards our own desires, our own glory, our own greed. And this reality always shows up in our life in some way. We can try and hide it. We can try and fake it. We, we could be like an actor on a stage in a theater, right, pretending to be someone that we aren't. But you can't fake the desires of your heart. And this is why we talk, when we talk about change, we must talk about your heart. We have to talk about what's going on inside of you. Like the heart is the castle we must storm fighting to see it submit and surrender to the will of God. For if your heart can fully turn to God, then your life will naturally follow its lead. See, this was a major teaching point for John the Baptist uh, when he was preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, Earlier in Luke, John was calling people to a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And People were coming along. They were like, oh, that sounds good. Let's, let's figure this out. We're coming to the Jordan River, getting baptized. And we had Pharisees also come by. And the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones that said, look how great my life looks. They were the great actors and actresses of the time. Or their out, outer life looked correct, but their inner life was a sinful mess. Right? They came sniffing around. They said, well, we want to get in this, this, this whole baptism Action, let's do this. Let's, let's make it happen. So, this is how John responded. If you have Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus or John said this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, including the Pharisees. He said, You brood of vipers, which is a nice greeting. Um, I wouldn't suggest it if you have guests coming over. You brood of vipers. without true heart change. He's saying, hey, show me it's real by what you do. He's saying it doesn't count who your family is, that your, your parents were believers, that you're a nice person, that you eat the donut holes after the service. We don't have donut holes today, sorry. There's no donuts, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, that you give money to the church, that you're regular on Sunday, it doesn't matter. What matters is that your life matches your Repentance. Now, repentance and bearing good fruit are intimately connected, all right? Repentance means that you acknowledge your sin, you seek forgiveness for your sin, then you turn away from your sin, like deep heart turn away from your sin towards God. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, it's not just saying the words, I'm sorry, it's turning away. Uh, I don't know if you have, if you have kids. Um, this, is, this probably only happens to my kids. This is exclusively a my kid problem. Um, so this, let me just share this because this won't resonate at all with you. Uh, when they fight with each other and they have to apologize, when inevitably someone like, starts crying, they have to apologize to each other. Sometimes it's so fake, it annoys me to, to ah! This is how it ends up going. Apologize to your sister. (sighs) Sorry. Sorry. Like, that doesn't count. That's so fake. Get out of here with that business. Oh, sorry. I'm like, say it like you mean it. We've all said that, right? Say it like you mean it. And they're like, sorry. (laughs) It's like, fine, get out of here with that. That doesn't mean anything, right? And then, Okay, we're talking about, now we're talking about repentance and all that kind of stuff. But the word sorry doesn't mean much if it doesn't result in a change in your actions, right? Repentance is a call to fully return to God at a heart level. Now hear this, John isn't advocating for a works-based salvation. John's not saying, hey, um, you need to earn your salvation in some way by how you live. It's not what he's saying here. All right, the grace that Jesus offers you isn't dependent on you being all like, fully cleaned up and buttoned up and a nice church person. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he said, instead, the Holy Spirit enables us to, to fully grasp the gospel, to repent of our sins, and then receive grace totally apart from anything we've ever done. We just receive that. Nothing we do changes that. We just simply receive it. But then, then the fruit you bear is the consequence of this newly redeemed and renewed life. You've received grace and it changes us. It causes us to go, oh, now my heart's turned to you, God. If you've been saved by grace, then the fruit you bear will be good. You could say it's Evidence of your salvation, not for your salvation. Okay? Right, so when John looked at the Pharisees and called them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he's saying, listen, if you've truly turned your whole heart to God, you'll certainly show it. Of course, naturally. Now, people hearing this were kind of freaked out by this. Like, oh, oh, I need to bear fruit and keep What, what is that all about? Let's keep reading what he says. The crowds came to him and asked him, what then shall we do? The Pharisees got to figure it out. What should we do? And John answered, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Again, naturally, this overflow of of, of this changed heart and life. Of course, you're naturally just going to go and start serving people and give others grace because you've received grace. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and say, hey, teacher, teacher what shall we do? Tax collectors, huh? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Right? You've received this, so change accordingly. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Right? If this is impacting. If you've received this, then you'll naturally do something different with your life. Whatever context you find yourself in, whether it be a soldier, tax collector, some random dude that just shows up, right? Whatever context you find yourself in, the heart of a believer emphasizes that identity received from God over anything else, right? And because of that, there's a natural practical progression that repentance offers you that shows up in your daily life in context. Right? If you've truly repented, it will naturally draw you somewhere different. In other words, let your life and actions match the change your heart professes to God. Now, there's beauty in the simplicity of this. And it's, I think it's helpful for us as believers. There's no complicated equation. i got to get a whiteboard out and draw out the, the, the mathematical proof here to figure this whole thing out. No, just... You are what comes out of you. If if you believe this, if if God is, like, man, if you encounter the living God, then you'll certainly be changed deep in your heart and soul, of course. And yet, it feels like so few are changed. There's this quote from uh, Brennan Manning, the theologian, uh, or, like any like old school DC. talk fans, you maybe have heard this one. the greatest The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think one of the most disheartening experiences we can have in the church is when you see someone claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, yet the fruit of their lives causes decay in those around them rather than nourishment. It's akin to going like to home goods and picking out the decorative plastic fruit and then trying to feed it to your kids. Like, eat up, Johnny. We got some, here's dinner. <laughs> we got plastic fruit for you doesn't work that way. There are those who show up to church every Sunday who attend MC, who serve, yet never allow the truth of the gospel to pierce their hearts in a way that produces and bears good, invisible fruit. The call to heart change is frequent and obvious throughout the Bible, yet is still a major struggle for many people. I think there's three reasons why Heart change is so hard, especially today. The first one is unbelief. There's two sides of unbelief, right? The first and foremost is that heart change is impossible when we don't believe the gospel. If you don't believe the gospel, your heart will not change. Full stop. There is no second step after that one. You must first believe the gospel. If you don't, you will not change, right? So make sure that that is first true for you before you move on to anything else we're talking about. If you do believe the gospel, the other side of unbelief is, I think sometimes we simply don't believe that real heart change can happen. I've talked to a lot of people who are just like, I've lived my life long enough and I've experienced enough, enough junk in my life, whether it be from family, hard relationships, an endless struggle with temptation and sin, where people have experienced that and said, I don't believe people can actually change. Right? We sense this. We sense that, man, this is hard. And it's killed your belief in real change. It's led you down a path where I just don't think it's going to happen. And when we believe this, that change is impossible or it can't happen, what happens is it leads to a lack of expectation that change can happen. And when you, when you don't expect that change can actually happen, that God can change someone's heart, it changes how we talk to people. It changes how we encourage people and gospel people. It, it changes how we lead one another. It changes our prayers, how we read and, and, and experience the Bible. And if we don't believe that change can happen and we avoid thinking about change in all those areas, guess what? You've done everything possible to avoid change and you prove it to be true. Second reason why change is so hard is our stubbornness and pride. We live in an era of extreme self-marketing and self-propaganda. Sin of pride is swelled in a way that's nearly unmanageable. But pride is viewed as a badge of honor. Honor. Right? It's celebrated. It's trumpeted. It's like, this is the highest place you can be. Have pride in yourself. It's something to fight for and to maintain. Get those followers out there. Right? Make, sure you have, make sure everyone's seeing what's happening. Make sure you look for those hearts and, and likes that come up on your, on your posts. We want to make sure that we are seen as supreme and awesome. And this is nothing new. All throughout the Bible... Major story arcs are driven almost exclusively by pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Right? Pride is the starting point of destruction. Pride is the great slayer of heart change. Right? When we have pride, there's no need for heart change because I'm never wrong. How would I change? I'm I'm always right. There's no need for heart change when everyone else is the issue. All right, we stiff-armed Jesus in that. Hey, hey, that's not for me, friend. That's for these guys. I'm willing, with my pride, I'm willing to exchange. I'll give you this, Jesus. I'm willing to exchange one set of truths for another. But I'm not willing to let those things change me. See, pride creates this hardness of heart that numbs us to what's really going on. It dims the heart. We can't see what's, what, what is happening to us so much so that eventually it just shuts off. And now all you see is everybody else. The last reason that I think heart changes so hard is fear. It's fear. Now, I don't mean fear like being afraid of ghosts or clowns. Although there are people who are afraid of clowns. It's a real thing. Sorry if that's you. Um, I I didn't even know someone who's afraid of being abducted by aliens. So that's a real thing. Um, People are just afraid of stuff, right? I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I mean fear like you've lost confidence in who God says he is. When you look into our world today, you've undoubtedly seen a drastic change from five years ago? Ten years ago? Let alone looking back at, like, your childhood, how things have changed? Right? And some of you, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe all of us have said, it's not really change for the good. And you can contribute lots of factors to that, right? You know, it's technology, parenting, entertainment-centric churches, prosperity gospels, sexual revolution, all those things. But one thing, no matter what has what caused it, one thing that hasn't changed is the supremacy of Jesus over our world. Jesus still conquered death on our behalf. Jesus still sits at the right hand of the Father in the control room of heaven, as we say here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is in control, and that has never changed, nor will it change. Jesus will still be in control. Yet, as our world changes, what I've experienced, what I've seen, is I've seen a rise in pastors, podcasters, YouTube theologians, calling Christians not to examine their own hearts, not to look inward, but to lash out at the sins of others. See, there's a great deal of social media preachers out there uh, fear-mongering for a prophet. They're saying, Christians, don't you know? You should be afraid because you're losing your grip on the world that you didn't actually have, right? You're losing your grip on the world, so you got to fight. Oh. If the world doesn't look like you, Christian, then you got to flee in fear. You got to forget mission, forget discipleship. Just circle your wagons and protect yourself. Put your hope in the correct politics. Get those angry re- retweets out there. Get in that echo chamber where it swells your pride and your fear equally. Now, should we stand for truth? Yes. But should we first stand in the confidence of God's promises to us over our fear? Yes. Absolutely. But you'll say, it's, it's harder today, though. It's so hard. It's not fair. I, I have to think and all, all, this, all these things. It's challenging me. It's not fair. Welcome to the Bible. And the great heritage of the saints have come before us. They're like, finally, they're here. They get it now. They see what's going on. Rarely. Has there been a time of peace and serenity where it wasn't challenging to follow and trust God in the Bible? Perhaps the only time we see this, you see that easy Christian life we all long for is when Jesus fulfills his promises to return. And he's creating the new heavens and new earth where sin and death are no more and he wipes away every tear. That's the easy Christian life. But before that, we don't get that. Yeah, it's scarier out there. But as it gets scarier out there, we must do more work in here. In here. We must not allow unbelief and pride and fear to dictate our journey of true gospel-driven heart change. Because here's the truth. We'll always reveal the truths of ourselves. Always. Always. John Phillips, the theologian, had this quote. He said, people will always, sooner or later, absolutely betray themselves. You will betray yourself. So they will declare themselves to be regenerate or unregenerate, spiritual or carnal, godly or worldly, clever or ignorant, wise or foolish, good or bad. You will betray yourself. No matter how hard you try to fake it till you make it, you will eventually betray yourself. You're always producing fruit. This is the key to remember. There's no off-season. There's no, you know, the, the cherries aren't quite ripe yet, so don't buy them yet. No, no, no. You're always producing fruit. There's no winter. You're always producing fruit. So when people taste the fruit of your life, are they getting a taste of ripe, juicy, good fruit? Or are they getting the plastic, tasteless, decaying fruit? Are they getting a taste of the kingdom or a taste of death and decay? When people taste the fruit of your life, are they getting a taste of heaven or a taste of hell? Christian, the call today is to experience true heart change, reflecting the heart of our Savior Jesus so that you can produce good fruit. And if you want to experience real heart change, it requires us to embrace three things. First, we need to embrace self-examination over other accusation. We need to embrace alignment, the alignment between our, our hearts and our hands. And we need to embrace maturity born of humble surrender and receptiveness. So let's walk through each of these. The first requirement for heart change is to embrace self-examination over other accusation. Going back to our passage today, Luke chapter 6, verse 43, starting there. It says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. I like, think to me the key word in this is for. For all right, Jesus is using this passage to explain the ramifications of a previous passage. So let's back up a little bit. All right, look at uh, verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your own eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out that speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. I think what Jesus is saying here is that good trees bear good fruit only when they first have dealt with their own sin. That as we go through that self-examination process, with gospel intentionality, it shapes our hearts and minds in such a way that produces helpful and useful fruit. Otherwise, our own sense of self-righteousness plagues our heart and it produces nothing but bad fruit in us. See, when we allow fear and pride and unbelief to drive our lives, we turn off self-examination in favor of pointing out other people's sin, accusing others of what they're doing first and foremost, and it's way safer this way. Trust trust me, it's way safer to point out the sin in other people than to look at your own self because you may not like what you find. So what we do is, it's raining out, you go in there, shut shut that window to your heart. I don't want to look in there, shut it off. I become settled in my own self-righteousness. Now, naturally, this puts me in like a a weirdly combative stance where now I'm weighing my goodness against your sinfulness. How good am I? Well, let me look at how sinful all you are. It's really easy to see the sin in somebody else. And guess what I'm doing? I'm killing it. There's a great story from Millard Fuller. He's the co-founder of Habitat for Humanity. And he's talking to a group of like 200 pastors at a seminary. And he asked, in Habitat for Humanity, they build houses and all that kind of stuff. So he's, they're talking about greed and selfishness as a sin. And he asked the question, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? And he asked these pastors, they raise your hand if you agree. And all the pastors raised their hand. they said, yeah, we, sure, we can see that. And then he says, okay, can you tell me exactly the square footage of, of the house that's sinful? Hmm, they're pastors, not architects. I don't know. Like, okay, and everyone's thinking, and there was a silence in the room. You could hear a pin drop. And finally, one brave soul in the back stood up, and he answered the question, what the exact size that makes a house and building that house sinful. And the guy says, When the house is bigger than mine. When the house is bigger than mine, that's when it's sinful. See, when our lives are oriented around comparing ourselves to somebody else's sin, instead of looking at our own sin, it has a natural impact on the fruit we bear. Right? We become jaded and bitter, disenfranchised with God himself. We're saying, God, this world's hard and scary. Why haven't you changed those people yet? Yeah. Unbelief fires up there, right? Now it's like, see? I asked God one time to change these people and he didn't do it, so obviously not possible anymore. Unbelief fires up. It causes our heart to grow colder to the world around us. And now mission dies. We become combative and frustrated with the church even. And I think we've seen that play out in our own church in the last year and a half, two years here. It's been hard. I don't know if you know this. We have people in our church, like all... like. As a church, we have strong opinions. Did you know that about us? It's crazy. We have people who are passionate, who have strong opinions, and have made strong life choices. And it's, and it's honestly, it's, it's kind of cool. But it creates tension at times. Maybe you felt that. Stances on masks, politics, race, health, fitness, Working moms, stay at home moms, private school, public school. It naturally creates tension between people. Right? You've maybe felt that. And right now, you're probably feeling it in your belly right now, like, oh, don't bring it up again. But do you know what dissolves that tension? Self examination. Looking at yourself. Because right? when you start seeing the truth of yourself, You start seeing your own sin and and, and Jesus' response to our sin and the grace that's offered to us. You naturally start to look upon the church and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with renewed, baptized eyes. Then you find that truth and grace, unity and peace is on your lips. And it pours out on those around you where once tension was found. Now it dissolves. As we look at ourselves, our goal is to take on the mindset of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart, which is really scary. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting the psalmist isn't saying, search everybody else first. You know, search the premises. Find the sin. <laughs> chop, chop, KGB or something. I don't know. He's saying, search me first. Let me go first. Let me be the first to reveal my sin. And as that happens, the prayer is lead me in the way everlasting to take that sin out and lead me. Turn myself towards God. All heart change must start by looking at ourselves, and we never stop this process. And as we examine ourselves, it leads us to our next requirement. The second requirement for heart change is to embrace the alignment between the heart and the hand. Back to our passage again, verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. All right, there's a, a beautiful, harmonious alignment happening in this verse. Everything is working together to produce good or evil, right? Your character, your heart, and the works you do, all these things working together in alignment. And if you want to embrace real heart change, you have to embrace that particular alignment between what you say and do and who you are in the inside. All right, when there's a disconnect between this truth We get out of alignment. And chiropractors, is that bad when we're out of alignment? Yeah, we, we have chiropractors here a lot. Right, when you're out of alignment, bad things happen. It hurts. I think one of the ways we operate out of alignment with our heart and hands is when we allow our feelings to dictate our actions. When our feelings rise up above anything else, and now I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. Paul warns us that in our immaturity, it's possible to get sucked into the wrong things because of how it makes us feel. It feels right to me. It says in Ephesians 4, verse 14, He says that in order, we need to grow in faith, unity, and maturity. In verse 14, he says, so that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Otherwise, if, if you allow yourself to be drawn that way, you'll have little alignment between what's in our heart and what we do. We need to understand that feelings almost always betray us. Our feelings drive us to a place where we become untethered, a bit wild even. We drop our guard, and then at that point, it's often that our true character is revealed in those unguarded moments, right? That's when we portray ourselves, when we allow feelings to be the number one thing we respond to. See, when feelings start to dictate our hands, we must instead be obedient to the truth over anything else. I think there's two ways we let our feelings dictate our hands. First is we want to feel justified, Oh, justice. Oh, vengeance. When someone wrongs me, get out of my way. Because I'm I'm getting justice and vengeance. Justice is a powerful emotion that drives us to make bold but dumb decisions. We hate feeling like someone else is being unfair to us. We hate it. Oh, when someone's being real loud wrong in front of us. No, thank you. I'm <laughs> when someone's wrong, and in my view, you're wrong. Guess what? I am going to freely lash out with glee. I'll cackle as I tear you down. Because I am exacting vengeance for your wrongness. Justice makes us make dumb decisions sometimes. But maybe you don't, you don't want to do that. You're like, I don't know. You find yourself saying to yourself often, I hate being the bigger person always. I don't feel that like, oh, it's so hard to be the bigger person. If you're doing that, if you're striving to align treasures with your heart in your hands, this will be a common experience. You'll probably feel that a lot because what you're doing is you're laying down your need to exact vengeance and you're it, handing it over to Jesus and surrendering it to Jesus saying, hey, this is rightfully yours to do. I'm going to pick up unity and grace and peace. That's what I'm called to do. All right, the next thing, I think we, when we let feelings dictate our hands, we also want to feel authentic. We want it to feel natural, coming like this is true to me. All right, how often have you avoided doing something that you know to be good, right, and true because you wanted to feel authentic? Right, I, you know, I just... I'm just not quite feeling it right now. It doesn't, like, it's just not, uh, I'm just going to wait until this. It could be like praying, worshiping, reading your Bible, serving other people, right? going down to, to kids' ministry and signing up with Emily. You should do that. Talking to a friend about Jesus. I'm just not quite feeling it yet. I just, I want to, like, once my, I have my coffee, and like, it just comes naturally from me. It comes out of my pores. That's when I'll know I'm, I'm being authentic to myself. That's when I'll be obedient. If we wait till our, our desires align with God's truth before we act, it may never, may never get there. We talked about our, our hearts betraying us. Sinful desires, we may never get there. So alignment works both ways. right? As we are, are obedient with our hands, it will connect to our hearts in such a way that produces good treasure. We're going back to that cycle I mentioned, right? As we're obedient on the surface with our hands, it leads to deeper heart obedience. And that deeper heart obedience makes your hands obey even more, right? True heart change understands that in order to maintain the alignment of the treasure in your heart and the good you produce, we must simply be obedient to God's truth in the gospel even when it's hard, even when it feels unnatural. And it leads us to our last and maybe most important requirement. The third requirement for heart change is to embrace maturity born out of humble surrender and receptiveness. Back to our passage, second half of verse 45. It says, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See, our heart works exclusively out of the overflow. Right, this is not like Costco, where like everything's like neatly arranged, and you can just like walk down the aisles of your heart. Like today, I'll be joyful. This will be good. Or like, this situation calls for, um, you know, a twenty-four pack of of non bread or I whatever. Mean, like no, like you can't go and compartmentalize your heart and say I'm going to do this today. This is going to be great. I'm I'm going to. This is going to be awesome. No, our our hearts, are like overflowing bathtubs, with the faucet running full blast still. It's constantly spilling out. It's constantly overflowing and ruining or or hopefully not ruining everything around it. This is what drives our speech, our actions, what we produce. That what fills you is what springs forth from you. So what's filling you up today? Jesus says there's two options, only two. There's good treasure, and there's evil treasure. Evil treasure is evil not only because of its sinful character of the thing itself, right? It's, it's, it's declared sinful, but also because of its harmful effects on those around you, right? It, it actually causes others to stumble and fall. So what are the things you invest your time in that makes you less like Jesus, that makes Others less like Jesus. Conversely, you have good treasure. And good treasure is good not only because of its intrinsic goodness, right? But also because it allows others to experience and even produce good fruit themselves. Right, that as you produce good work out of the overflow of your good treasure, others are drawn into that as well. As you read your Bible and pray and worship and serve, you overflow onto others in such a way that they get to experience the kingdom themselves. But where does this overflow come from? It's Jesus Himself. Listen to what He says in John chapter seven, verse thirty-seven. He says, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me." As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, Jesus said, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. What Jesus is saying is that if you believe in me, if you trust in me, he will fill you with living water to an incredible Abundance. Right? And by His Spirit, you will overflow with good fruit from the good treasure in your heart. Listen to the fruit that's born from out of this overflow. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, not the fruit of your effort, not the fruit of like, I just stumbled into something, Right, the fruit th- that the Holy Spirit produces in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is good fruit. This is what solves tension in churches, right? When people are giving themselves over to the Spirit and, and allowing that to overflow in them. Jesus is willing to be the abundant overflow in your life. The question is, are you willing to surrender yourself and receive him this morning? If you want to mature in heart change, if you want to be someone who gets really good at heart change, you must recognize it's not a single event. And much like the gospel it's like, oh, believe the gospel, check, see you later. Heart change is not a single event. But rather... It's a moment-by-moment moment posture of surrender towards Jesus, where you are constantly willing and ready to receive him. I think one of the most important moves and hard changes is to simply remain open and receptive to the work of Jesus in your life. See, far too often, we desire to be the hammer. We want to be the hammer. We want to call it sins in others we want to demand righteousness from others while neglecting our own hearts we want to fight to be right over being sanctified I'll be the hammer (laughs) what would it look like to desire to be the nail instead willingly allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin to drive you to heart change to be opened to that kind of rebuke and conviction in your life. What would it look like to be the, the nail? See, I think God not only desires this for his people, but he enables you to, to be receptive like this. Listen to how God interacts with his people in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. See, when we receive, encounter God and willing to receive Him, God changes us by removing our hard hearts that were once were cold and dead and walled off to change and to hope, and He gives us a new heart that's beating. Pump, pump. Pump, pump. Right, a heart that's open and warm, that's fully receptive and surrendered to God, that we might bear good fruit, we may walk in His ways. That right, God enables us to willingly accept this with steadfast obedience, that was not previously possible. See, Christian maturity is not like worldly maturity. We're like, I'm 16, I can drive my own car now, I don't need to listen to my parents anymore, I can make my own dinner, I'm like a fully-fledged adult now. When I'm 18, I can go out into the world and conquer everything. I'm self-sufficient now, right? That's not what Christian maturity is like. Christian maturity is the exact opposite. To mature as a Christian is to have a ever-deepening reliance on Jesus, where you are constantly looking for that downward mobility. We are constantly looking, what else can I give over to Jesus? Like, search me, oh God. What else can I give you? It's not saying, I don't need Jesus anymore. I'm mature. It's, I desperately need Jesus at all moments of my life. That's maturity. Maturity is freely and confidently admitting your weaknesses being confident in your weaknesses in order to relish and rejoice in the strength of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. That's maturity. That's a great hope for those who are struggling today with change. The more you abandon yourself, the more you admit that, "I I don't got this. I'm not killing it. The more you abandon yourself to Jesus, the more you'll actually overflow with Jesus. And that's what changes your marriage, by the way. If you're struggling with your marriage, that's what changes your marriage when you abandon yourself to Jesus. That's what changes your relationship with your kids. The more you give yourself to Jesus. That's what helps you overcome that sinful habit that you are is killing you. It's when you abandon yourself to Jesus and overflow with him more and more. See, so here's our hope. Jesus calls us to deeper heart change and a life that reflects the kingdom, but he also gives us all the resources we need to do this. If you do a flyover of the Bible, what you see is a challenging call to faith that's all like like all consuming. Combined with the glorious supplying of everything we need to make that happen. Or we're called to ask for daily bread, to not worry but to trust God's provision, to embrace the easy yoke of Jesus. Right? To surrender to and rely on the Holy Spirit that produces fruit in you. A major theme of the kingdom of God is that God is providing everything you need. You have needs, God provides. You sin, God provides. You repent, God provides. You desperately yearn for heart change, God provides. He's making it incredibly simple for you to live a life with a fully transformed and changed heart. But again, I ask the question, are you willing to receive him today? Now, as we come to the table, this is our first opportunity to really examine ourselves. And we're called to do that. Paul actually challenges believers. He says, I want you to examine yourself prior to taking the bread and the cup. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27-29, through 29, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So Paul is saying, hey, we can't just let our sin sit unexamined, unrepentant. We have to look at that, to turn our, our, our faces to that sin, acknowledge it, repent, and turn back to God and receive him today. So what I want to do here is, as we prepare our hearts for this, I want to do that together. Um, so do me a favor, let's, let's pray together, and I'm going to ask you a few questions. Go ahead and just close your eyes. And can I get yourself in that that posture of of openness? Um, And I want to ask you a few questions to help you examine yourself today. So as you start to turn your heart of flesh towards change, consider these questions. What have you refused to examine within yourself? What's not given over yet? Where is your heart and hands out of alignment? Where have you allowed your feelings about politics, masks, race, your neighbor, your MC, the church, worship music, whatever it may be? Where have you allowed your feelings to lead you into sin? To alter your character? What do you need to surrender this morning? How do you need to better receive the rebuke that conviction brings? And finally, how do you need to become more receptive to Jesus in the gospel? Lord, as we ask ourselves these questions, we, we trust that you will meet us there. Lord, it's not up to us to just work harder and strive. Lord, just to be receptive, um, to be the nail that gets hammered sometimes by you. And that's okay. That's what you're called to. As we do that, Lord, as we give ourselves over to you, we will overflow with, with your good treasures. So Lord, help us to receive you today. As we come to the table, Lord, help us to, as we take that the bread and the cup, Lord, let us receive that. Remember that you have provided everything we need so that it's safe and good to hand it over to you, Lord. We thank you. We love you and ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.